So, good morning. It's good to see you. We are glad that you are here at Hope Fellowship. Grab your Bibles today, turn to the book of 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28, and then we will work our way into uh, 1 John chapter 3 together this morning. We have, over time now, starting in last month of August, every time that we come to that of Communion Sunday, the Lord's Table Day, that we have kind of condensed all of that and, and encapsulated all of that into a series we called Remember. So we started in August with remembering our, uh, con- our um, commonality and community. We talked about how when we come to the Lord's table, we celebrate community together. And so today it's about, re- and today it's about remembering who we are. And, and you said, but Mark, why do you want to talk about communion when we have that on that day? You know, we've, we've been to church a lot. We've, maybe you grew up in a church, we said last time we talked, where there's a table up front that says, do this in remembrance of me. So, so why all of that? We understand about the remembering part, because as church people, and I use that term very loosely, and I realize that we have different people from different backgrounds here this morning. But as church people, we tend to do things repetitively without knowing actually why we do them. You know, what is the meaning behind this? What is the meaning behind the, the liturgy? What is the meaning behind the process and how we do this? Uh, what is the meaning behind the Eucharist or that of what we call the common table, the Lord's table of the communion or, or the Lord's supper, or whatever, term, or whatever term that you might use. So when we look at this, I think it has to start with my imagi- our imagination. And I love this because when you read Scripture, we realize that it was given to us to look at and to read with imagination. Not that we add something that's not there, but yet it, there, there's given enough fact, but yet there's also given this levity for you and I to read with imagination. I imagine as we come to the Lord's table in a few moments together, that that time and that, that moment when Jesus was with his disciples, and he's in this room in Jerusalem, it's just uh, days before his crucifixion, the very same day of his betrayal, and he's reclined at the table. The table would be in a long, very low-to-the-ground table, yet surrounded with pillows, so they eat reclined. And so he's reclined at the table with his disciple, this very intimate kind of setting. And so it's this last opportunity in this setting with those that he has walked the earth with, he's poured into his life, that he has rejoiced with and he has wept with, those that he has simply been maybe closest to physically, yet, you know, he has this moment. So what do you do in that moment? Well, it's what most of us would do, I think, if we were with loved ones or those that are close to us. We'd want to impart something to them that they would remember us by. It's what Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians. And if you've been to church at all, maybe, and ever been to a communion service, you've probably heard this text read. And it says this in 1 Corinthians 11 and 23. It says, For I have received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, Paul says, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so Paul writes this, not introducing the sacraments to the church at Corinth, because they had been doing this all through the book of Acts ever since that Jesus introduces that to the disciples. So it's not an introduction to that of the Lord's table, but what it is, it's, it's a word from Paul dealing with a misuse of the Lord's table, because at Corinth there are those that are rich and then there are those that are very, very poor. And so the rich would get served first as it was a meal, and they would get served first, but they would leave very little at the meal table for the poor who would simply come after them. And so Paul addresses the misuse of that. That's why we call it the common table. It's always been about relationship. 
When we come together and we celebrate the Lord's table together, it's about relationship and it's about community. It's remembering the things that we share in common. That's why we said we want to take these times together. We want to encapsulate them in this series called Remember to share the things that we have in common. So we share in common that of the redemptive work of Christ in all of our lives. That you and I are saved by grace through faith. And we realize that the very faith that you and I have to trust the grace that is given to us by God is a gift of God within itself. So what that says to you and I, it's a very leveling uh, experience because we bring nothing to the table, no matter who we are, no matter how long you've come to church, no matter how big of a Bible you carry, no matter how much scripture that you have memorized within your life, that this table is the common table. It brings a very level playing surface for all of us. It's a great picture of grace. It's a great picture of redemption. Redemption. It exemplifies service and that of uh, sacrifice, that, that it's giving of oneself you know, to, to another, that we love because he first loved us. It's about community. And I love this because as we study from the book of 1 John today, it excites me that we're about to embark next week together on this series for our fall and winter all the way through to the spring, the study through the gospel of John. And, and we, what we realize is that this study through the Gospel of John is so powerful. Why? Because John doesn't write necessarily from really an academic standpoint, but he writes from a very relational standpoint. It's about true relationship and it's about community. And so it's something that we can very much attach ourselves to. And so as we prepare for the Lord's table, as we prepare for next week, as we start through this, the Gospel of John in our series together, what better place for you and I to begin than to read from the epistles of John? So we're going to read together this morning, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28. And it says this, and now little children abide in him. What you're going to see starting next week also is that John loves this word abide. I mean, he uses this a lot. And, and understand, it's not that he's saying or not that he infers that you and I can somehow lose this relationship with God. That's not what he's saying. But it's an admonishment for you and I to continue what we're doing, to continue in the faith, he said, to abide in the faith. It's a statement of confidence because look what he says as we continue. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at the coming. It's contextually realize that this is about those that are in opposition to God. And so he says in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That phrase, boy, when I read that, that phrase, born of him, it's a powerful statement. It really is. And so I know that we have a mixed group, and for some of you, maybe you've been in church most of your life, and you say, Mark, I know exactly what that means. But then we have those of you that are, you're checking it out for the first time, you're kind of kicking the tires, and you're looking at things, you know, and you're wondering about Christianity, and when you hear that term, born of him, boy, it brings all kinds of thoughts to your mind. It sounds ludicrous that we could be born of God. It does. And it sounds very uh, arrogant that we might even say that. To know God, maybe you could understand that. To know some things about him, maybe you can buy into that. But it describes for you and I this level of intimacy. Oh, surely that's arrogance, Mark, to simply say that we've been born of him. So I present this question for our discussion this morning. How can people of flesh and blood be children of an eternal being who is spirit. How is that possible? How, how does that happen within our lives? Because when we read these two texts, it seems that for some people that happens, and, and that is happening in their life, and for some people it seems like, well, that's not happening in their life. What makes a Christian claim to be born of him? 
when it's not boasting, it, it, when it's not something that we're arrogant about. What makes that claim that we can make as Christians? And what John does here, as we work our way through chapter 3, man, he gives us some amazing answers. Because what he does is he eliminates any place for boasting when we become a Christ follower. He eliminates that completely, yet at the same time, he affirms who we are in Christ, that we are children of God. He affirms that, but yet he, he removes any place and any kind of, I, I guess, any kind of words that we could have that we could boast in in saying that we're born of God. Because what Scripture does amazingly is this. It has a way of balancing our lives in the light of what Christ has done in our lives and the light, in the light of also of our own humanity and of our own humanity, of our own imperfection, our own brokenness. So John says, hey, here's an antidote for that of arrogance in your life about making that statement that you're born of God. Here's an antidote against pride and smugness or any form of posturing yourself over others uh, when it comes to being born of Him. Anytime you want to posture yourself as, well, I'm a church-going person, I'm a church-going Christian, and, and those that are not church-going people, he said, I'm going to give you some direction that simply levels the ground, is what he said, that it moves any place for arrogance within your life. Can I tell you something this morning, and you know this, but I have to say this to you, and, and, and just hear it with open ears and open heart, that attending church does not make you Christian. Understand that. Attending church does not make you Christian. It can make you very Southern, but it can't make you Christian. Understand that, right? Yes, it does. Because we know what we do in the South on Sunday morning, the holy time between that of 10 and 12. Most of the time, what? We're going to church somewhere. We may not really connect to that, but we're there. No, it's more than just, it makes about as much sense coming to church, making you a Christian, as it does that you going into Starbucks and somehow it makes you a chai latte with a double shot. You know what I mean, right? It doesn't make you that, but you're there, but it doesn't make you that. And it makes it just about as much sense as that what makes us born of him and the beauty of what john is going to teach us in a few moments that we're going to share in commonality at the table of the lord is this it's the infusion of the life and the nature of christ within us that's what makes us christian understand that and and what i realize is this it's not my behavior my behavior does not make me christian but what my behavior does it makes my christianity believable to those that are not following christ it does And in light of being born of Him, we have this confidence in who we are. John teaches us. We have this responsibility in who we are. And we have this community with one another that it translates into. And so it's not what I do or what I don't do that makes me a Christian. It's the infusion of the life and the very nature of God within my life. Being a child of God is what we have in common. And that's what we share and what we're going to share for a few moments when we come together. It's the Lord's table. He gives us confidence in who we are. He gives us responsibility in who we are, absolutely, and an obligation to one another. So go to chapter 3 of 1 John. We begin reading it, verse 1. It says this, and, and I, I, was, I underlined this and I highlighted this in my Bible. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Because when I think of how much God loves me, I always think of what? 
quantity. I do. I think of how much I, I do. So I want to put some kind of quantitative uh, you know, value to that and say this is how much. But what John says, see what kind of love the Father has given us. It, it's the way that God loves us. He loves us with this active and creative love. It's the way that he loves us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, he calls us beloved. I love that. You know what? I love it when my wife calls me, she calls me babe or honey. You know, and you say, Mark, that's like, ugh. And, and if one of my sons are here, and they're probably thinking, ugh, kind of deal, right? Yeah, but she calls me. She can call me Mark, right? And, and if she calls me Mark, then many times it's because I have not done something right. Yes, yeah. But if I hear her call me babe, oh, I'm responding very quickly, right? All of a sudden, my selective hearing loss has gone away. I've been healed completely of that, right? And I respond because I know babe sometimes has some better things attached to it, right? Exactly. So, so I respond. And he says, you are, he calls us beloved. It sets us up for something powerful here is what it does and how God sees us. He says, beloved, we are God's children now and we will be at, are, and, and it says, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him per, um, purifies himself as he is pure. So here's the first thought this morning, and it's this. We have confidence in who we are. It starts with confidence because we live in a world, man, where confidence simply erodes out from under us all the time on so many levels of life that we have this confidence. And it's not based upon what we've done. Here's the beauty of this. It's not based upon what we've done. It's not based on how good we are. It's not based upon what you and I can bring to the table in our relationship with God. It's a confidence that we're loved and that love translates into what he calls. He calls a calling or he has called us his children. So I got curious about that. What does that mean? That that word called, and he has called us. It's more than just a title. No, when he calls us his children. It's it's an inauguration of a relationship. And that, that really interests me. It's the way God loves us. And it's this, that he initiates the relationship, is what it is. He initiates a relationship. Yeah, There's just something about a relationship when we experience that, and it's been initiated by someone else. There's something powerful about what takes place in our heart when someone initiates a relationship with us and we're not the initiator. Yes, he chose to love us. I don't know if you understand that or not. Because I've heard people say that, well, I remember the day that I chose God. Listen, you didn't choose him, he chose you. Understand that. If you chose him, then somehow it makes it your work and you have the power to do that in your life and you don't understand that. He chose you and that is a starting place, I think, for our relationship with him this morning. But there's something about this kind of relationship when it is initiated by someone else. Oh, it's powerful. Can I share with you an amazing love story? Can I? Thank you. I appreciate that. So here, is, here it is. This excites me. Here's this love story. This is the greatest love story of all time. This is it. That you have God the Father sending God the Son, and you have God the Son being conceived in the Virgin Mary by God the Holy Spirit. Boom. That's a love story. Isn't that powerful? Yes. You say, Mark, 
Really? No, it is a powerful love story. It's the God of the, uh, God of the Bible revealing an attribute of the Godhead, and that is that he is a God of initiation. That God initiates a relationship with you and I. It is. Yeah. When Reba and I were first dating, I remember this. You know, we just celebrated our 40th anniversary, I told you. So it's been a while ago, but I still, uh, those things are so vivid in my mind that I was, not the, the, I was not the guy with the most initiative back then. Understand that. And so, you know what? Do you know how long that we dated before I kissed her? Do, do you want to know? Do you really want to know? So you say, oh, maybe like a week, two weeks, you know. Like a, no, no. We dated six months before I ever kissed her. Right. Six months. Yes. Yes, that's right. You say, Mark, didn't you know how? Didn't, didn't, I mean, didn't you read the manual? Didn't, didn't you know what lips were for kind of deal, you know? And didn't, didn't you realize that? No, I just knew that my lips were so amazing that she had to wait for them. That's exactly what I knew. That's not true, okay? That's not true at all. No. I like to think that. It makes me feel good about myself, but that is not the truth. No. No. He, here's my thought. I, I never initiated that. Now, I want to tell you, after we initiated that first kiss, man, it wasn't long before we got married, and you can just figure out all the rest of that, okay? Understand that, right? But, but, yes, but what I realized is that I didn't initiate those things, and there was many things in my life that I didn't because you know why? I, I was always afraid of rejection. I was. And I know why. As a counselor, you know, I've counseled myself. <laughs> and, and so, right, and, <laughs> and I'm a terrible counselee. I'm, I'm awful. I don't ever listen to myself, you know, kind of deal. And, and so, and, and as a counselor, I, I realized that, you know, I, I had this great fear of rejection in my life because of the rejection that, that I had suffered and, and been through with, with my father and other things like that. So I feared that other people would leave me just as I had been left. And, and so I really suffered with that. And, and so what I re- thought was that, you know, if I did that and I was rejected, then I would end the relationship. That, that it would be over at that point. And I took that thought and I laid it over God. And I had this amazing thought very late last night as I was praying through all of this, and I kind of stuck this in my notes, that the God of the Bible, he, he is so powerful because what he does, he initiates this love relationship with you and I even when he knew he would be rejected. Even when he knew he would be rejected. I was going off an assumption, but he's got, and he knew. At our rebellion against him, either through whatever, it's our irreligion or religion or whatever it might be, God's response to that was that God leans into us. He leans into us even knowing that we would reject him. He leans into us. That God sins and Jesus comes, the Holy Spirit conceives and empowers. That God is an initiating God. That he leans into you and I and he doesn't abandon us in our mess. He doesn't abandon us in our mess, but he willingly gets his hands dirty in the middle of our lives. Do you know when Mary comes to the tomb after the resurrection, that he, she meets someone and 
she thinks that it's the gardener, but it's Jesus. But do you remember the story? Maybe you don't, but it's, it's, it's in, the, in the Gospels. If you read it, that he, she meets what she thinks is the gardener, but it's Jesus. And I've always thought it's so interesting that she thought he was the gardener. And, and, and because here is my thought, you know, as corny as it might be for Mark, and maybe this is just for me, so kind of, you know, listen to it for a moment. But yet, I often thought is this, what an amazing thought that she had thinking he's the gardener, because truly that's the way he works in our lives, that he has had his hands in the dirt of my life so many times, so many times in my life, that he doesn't reject me. He doesn't push me to the side. Uh-uh. He, doesn't, he doesn't lean away, but what God does is he leans into us. He leans into us. It's the, the impossibility of the incarnation that God would come and, and, and our God would send Jesus and, and, and that he would send Jesus through the Virgin Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. That what God does is this. He pushes back impossibility for you and I. That he leans into you and I so powerfully that he wraps himself in flesh, fully God and fully man. That he walks on the face of this earth as an expression of his love because he destroys this phrase that sometimes you and I use that God really doesn't understand how I feel but he does understand how I feel he's experienced everything in this world that that I experience he knows that you know what kind of love it is is this it's a love that causes the cross to be the centrality of my life and your life because he willingly and lovingly lays down his life for you and I he goes to this grotesque and physical death he defeats the grave he ascends to the father he sends the Holy Spirit to remind you and I that we are not orphans that we should be called children of God and so we are now John says what kind of love it's so amazing that John tells us that the world doesn't even understand it they don't John tells us that 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 they will struggle with this love why because it is yet not of this world but in this world in our lives that he simply leans into you and I and I believe some of you this morning here here and you're struggling just when I say God loves you you struggle with that because you somehow paint God with the brush of your circumstances or the situations in your life and you wonder how in the world can God love me when look at my life and look what I've done and look what I've been involved in and look how many times I've been there within my life and can I tell you God never Never has ever shied away from a challenge. Just look at me. He never has and he never will. But he leans into our lives. He puts his hands in the very dirt of our lives. And what he does, he takes something that is grotesque and ugly and sinful and shameful and ridden with guilt. And he makes it a child of his is what he does. For the last three weeks, we've called each other stinkers. Hadn't we We said, you know, we're a bunch of stinkers? You said that the person next to you, it's amazing. They no longer sit next to you, do they? I don't know why, right? Yes, yes, it's because you called them that. But what the beauty is, he takes all of us in our sin and our brokenness and those moments of our lives and he makes something beautiful out of us and he calls us his children. And that is so powerful. We have such great confidence in all of this. Why? Because it's not our works. It's not something that I have done within myself. Because if it had, I would not have confidence in that. But I have confidence in that and I am his child because he is the one that has initiated it. He started it. 
It was always his idea to love, love me and love you. It was always his thought. It was always his plan to lean into you and I. It was always his thought. And it's so amazing that it's difficult to wrap our mind around sometimes. Here's what Paul says in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 17. He says this, that the word, uh, he says that the Lord or the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. He said, listen, this is only something that God can reveal to you, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Our inheritance is him, of course, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might my confidence and found is an understanding that i did not initiate this he did he initiated this so it takes me to our second thought let's read on it's first john chapter 3 verse 4 i like that part about god loving me initiating well hang on because john balances this out here here's what he says is everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness sin is lawlessness what is lawlessness it's a rejection of the ways of god it's when we tolerate sin within our lives is what this is. It's an indifference to sin that opposes God. And he goes on to say, you know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. Not about our perfection, but it's about his perfection as it works within our lives, that we are simply born of him. And so what happens is this, that because we're infused with the character and nature of God, that we bear a family resemblance to the Father, is exactly what it's talking about. We go on to say in verse 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness as he is, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the sin, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. He doesn't say that we don't sin. He says no one that's born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. We're infused with the nature of Christ, it says, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But this, but this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We have a responsibility to who we are, is what he's saying. If, if sin, and I have to talk about this for a moment, okay? So, so hang on. If sin is opposition to God, then God leads into us while we're sinners. He dies for us. He loves us when we're unlovable. If sin is opposition to God, then Christ stands in opposition to our sin. Not to us, but opposition to our sin. Understand that he hates the things that harm us. We say that all the time because he is the good father and we need to take that to heart. It's that. But it's when we tolerate sin in our conduct. It's when we tolerate sin in our conduct. It's to undermine the purpose of the work of Christ upon the cross. Yes, what these verses are, they're a snapshot of the character of God and how he loves us. That God through Jesus takes away our sin. But not only does God take away our sin... But what he does is this, and this is powerful. He removes the guilt of sin in our life. He removes the hold of sin in our life. He takes us from darkness to light. So Mark, then what what do I do then? Every day of my life, do I live, live with righteousness on my mind? Do I live every moment trying to be righteous? And that's not what he's saying. Because if I do that, 
then I simply miss this opportunity where I really should be focusing, and that is being on a child of God, that what God has done for me. Because I want to tell you, I'm going to fail. It's going to happen. I am going to fail at some point. And if my focus is just righteousness and not being his child, then all the joy I get in my life is that somehow I've avoided a wrong. But if I focus on that of being a child of God, then what I realize is that I have the joy of a child desiring desiring to please his father in relationship. And I think for some of us in the room, when I even talk about God being your father, boy, that hits a nerve. It does. Because for some of you with your earthly father, no matter how well you did and no matter how you achieved, it was never good enough. But that's not God. Because he's the one that brings completion to our lives. Because it's about him. It's not about what I do or what I can do or how well I can do it. Because it's not my behavior, it's not my conduct that denotes that I'm a child of God. It's not that at all. It's not the label that I wear. It's not the name tag that I have on. No, but it's the life of God infused within me. The very nature of God infused within my life. That's my family resemblance. It's not terminology and it's not the theology that I understand. It's not the doctrines that I memorize, the ceremonies that I've reserved. It's God infusing himself into my humanity. Is it because he needs me? Is if we have, sometimes we paint God as this lonely deity in heaven who somehow needs a friend. No, it's because he loves me. And he hates the things that harm me. Because what's inside of me makes the difference. What's inside of me makes the difference. Man, I... In our church background and... In all the sermons that we hear over our lives, sometimes that truth is missed. It's the life inside of me that makes the difference. It's what takes place in my heart that changes what I do with my hands. It's what takes place in my heart that changes what the words are out of my mouth or what the thoughts are in my own mind or what my desires are, what I value in life. That's what changes. That's what makes the difference in our lives. You see, here's what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Not in your notes, not on the screen. Just throw this one out for you. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, he said. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That Paul says, I can't explain my life any longer in terms of myself. 
but it's Christ who lives within me. Yes, it's still me. It's still the sinful person that I am. It's still the flesh and blood, but yet my life is not defined by myself, but it's defined by Christ in me. So I had this thought that it's not the sin and the brokenness and the unfaithfulness and doubt and fear. Those are no longer the identifying characteristics of my life. We still find ourselves there at times, but those are not the defining characteristics of my life. But what defines me is I'm his child, that I've been infused with his nature. That is my family resemblance. I am covered in his perfection so that when God looks at me, he doesn't see my imperfection, but he sees the perfection of his son. And that changes everything. And what that does change is this. It's verse 11. It says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, that it changes the way I treat you and changes the way you treat me. That sort of takes it out of the ethereal realm, doesn't it? And it puts us right down to where we live. It's the infusion of the nature of Christ in our lives changes the way we live. Can I tell you, he loves you this morning. Oh, if, if you leave just knowing one thing, it's that, that he loves you. That he loves you. Late last night, I had this thought, and you know, I, I, I got, I'm not an emotional person, that's why you, you never see me up here kind of crying and blubbering. And maybe that's not bad, okay? If someday I just break down and do that, okay? Then you're going to say something's wrong with Mark, right? Because that's not him. But I'm just not that, that kind of, I'm I just not wired that way. If you're wired that way, I, that's wonderful. And I am so glad that you are. But that's not just the way I'm wired. But last night I sit down and I begin to just write some things and some thoughts in my journal. And, And I just felt this in my heart that some of you are saying, but God is probably tired of me by now. And his patience has worn thin. And I wrote that because I know that God, I, I have had that thought about God at times. And, and, and I really believe that. You know, people ask Reba and I all the time now that we don't have any kids at home anymore. And some of you are thinking, oh, my Lord, that must be heaven, right? If you're a parent in the room, right? And they say, so how's the empty nest thing going? I don't even know how to answer that sometimes. I really don't. Oh, we love it. Our kids are gone. Done. We're done with that. You know, that sounds awful, doesn't it? And then you say, oh, we miss them so bad we can't even live or breathe. And that sounds terrible, too. So it's neither one of those. And, and for some of you, you're thinking, dude, I'm tired of my kids, the noise, the mess, the odor, because kids smell bad sometimes, and the fingerprints and the time and, the, and doing the, the dioramas from school, you know, the, the shoebox things that you have to do. Uh, but I love doing those things with, with my boys, and, uh, I, and I, I'll never miss those things. But can I tell you, I miss those things. So I'll try not to be blubbery for a moment, okay? But I wrote a list of some things that I miss. I miss waking my guys up in the morning. Bradley was the worst. He's here this morning. Bradley was awful. I mean, I, I resorted to pouring water on, on him in the bed at times to get him out of the bed. It was like you'd have to have dynamite to get his rear end out of the bed. He was the worst. Yes. 
Chad was pretty good. Grayson was just always up like a clock inside. Brad was always that way, but Brad had amazing qualities that the other two don't have. And so we could talk about that, but we won't. It's the way God wires us all differently, yes? I love the conversations before bed every night that our boys, and I know they would kill me for saying this, but that's all right. I'm your dad, so you have to, you know, give me some latitude. They would come into our room at night before bed, and I'm in the bed, and I'm trying to go to sleep, and they want to lay across the end of the bed and have a conversation with us, and all I want to do is sleep. Boy, I miss that. I miss sitting up at night until they're all in from being out on a date or wherever, and then once they're all in and the doors are locked, I'm lying in bed and hearing them in their rooms and and feeling that all is safe. I miss that. I miss every morning on the way to school when I would take Grayson to school that Grayson loves cologne, you know. <laughs> he's not here. He's gone back to school. He left early this morning, so don't tell him I said that, but he loves it. And every morning I would get inundated with this cloud of his cologne sitting over there on the passenger side when I would uh, take him to school. But during the day when I'd have to go places, I'd always get in and my car would smell like him. And I miss that. There are times when I want, to he- I want to hear their voices. And so we spend a lot of time on the phone. Even when they're traveling in other countries. A phone call may cost a whole lot of money, but I just want to hear their voice sometimes. In a few years, my Grayson will be in the Navy on a ship somewhere and well, I want to make that phone call, but I can't, you know. Here's my thought. You're making me blubber up here, okay? So you got to stop, okay? Here's my thought. If I feel that way about my boys, how much more does your Father in Heaven feel and care about you? Because you see, I can only raise them and teach them things and try to be a good example and sometimes a bad example for them not to be. I can only do those things, but only God can complete us. I can't complete them, but only God can complete us because we're born of Him, called His children. He initiates the relationship with us. And today, we come to the Lord's table and we celebrate that together. So would you bow your heads for a moment with me? This crowd represents all walks of God's journey and spiritual journeys. And for some of you, this thought of God loving you has brought something to you today, some hope and some joy that maybe you didn't have. And for your next step this morning, to open your heart and your mind to the truth that God loves you. It is truly something that you can, yes, partially understand with your mind, but you have to open your heart and mind to allow God, to allow the Holy Spirit to really reveal the significance and the way that He loves you. Because words fail us.
For some of you that you are in that moment of opposition against God and you are fighting against Him and you, you feel that draw on your heart and there's a need for something in your life and you may not even understand it and what that is, that that is the Holy Spirit drawing you to God by His loving kindness. So open your heart and mind to the love and the forgiveness of Christ in your life today. Recognize your need for a Savior that you're a sinner and you need forgiveness. And you confess that to Him. And you come and you share what Christ has done at the table in celebration this morning. What we share in common, no matter who we are in this room, no matter what walk of life we come from, and no matter where we are on our spiritual journey, what we all share in this room is this overwhelming, immutable fact that God loves every one of us today, and He has leaned in and will continue to lean into us. No matter what we do or say or how much we reject Him, He will continue to lean into us because He loves us. And today we share that and celebrate that love together.